Hello, welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan Summer in Tel Aviv. No fewer than 16 Israeli ministers in the Netanyahu government, as well as members of Knesset, flew to New York City this week in what was called by critics back home as an air train, with visits taking place in and around the annual Salute to Israel parade in New York City. On the podcast, I'll talk to Haaretz Washington correspondent Ben Samuels, who was on the ground in New York this week, covering the determined protesters who took any opportunity to tell these visitors how they felt about the Israeli government's judicial overhaul, with demonstrations and protests that ruined the fun in the Big Apple for many of these politicians. Afterwards, we'll talk about some more pleasant events taking place overseas. The Israeli soccer team that includes Jewish and Arab citizens of Israel scored a miracle victory against powerhouse Brazil in the quarterfinals of the FIFA Under-20 World Championship taking place in Argentina right now. Haaretz sports writer Ido Rokovsky will tell us the story of the Dream Team, what their success means to Israelis, what their coach has in common with Ted Lasso, and what to expect as they move into the semifinals. All that coming up. Ben Samuels, usually in the Beltway in Washington, D.C., joining us this time from New York. Hi, Ben. Hi, Allison. So... Tell us about the annual Salute to Israel parade, about all of the events that surrounded it, that drew all of these Israeli ministers and members of Knesset. Who came to Israel to participate in this? Yeah, so every year the Celebrate Israel Parade, the Israel Day Parade, you know, the the celebration of Israel in New York by many names, you know, it always occurs around Yom Atzmut. This year it happened to occur several weeks later. And, you know, associated with that parade, which is, you know, kind of the peak moment of celebrating Israel in America, there are tons of smaller events on the sidelines throughout the greater Jewish community in the tri-state area. So this year, there was a much larger than usual delegation of Israeli ministers and lawmakers from Netanyahu's coalition that came over. So it was about, I think it was 16 people total that came. And, you know, just like in the protest movement in Israel, where you know, these ministers and lawmakers are trailed throughout their public engagements just so they can always be let known how much the pro-democracy protesters are dissatisfied with their public conduct, with the policies they're pushing. That, you know, really gets turned up to another level when they go abroad because, especially in New York, but, you know, in the greater Northeast area in general, there is a very large delegation of Israeli expats. And there's a large community of Israelis that have really planted their roots in America. You know, it's not just Israelis that are here for, you know, to study, even though there is obviously that coalition, but, you know, there's a huge Israeli community here. So over the past several days, these ministers and lawmakers have really been trailed incessantly, you know, whether it's meetings at local synagogues or with local Jewish federations or Jewish establishment organizations. You know, these protesters have come out really strong and also flanked by sympathetic and like-minded American Jews. So the biggest protest was on Sunday outside the Arucheva conference, but the parade itself It was a protest, but in many ways, it's also important to differentiate how it wasn't a protest. So tell us about that. There were some disagreements, right, within the protest movement as to what is the best way to protest at the parade. Yeah, exactly. So 
you know, it's interesting because this is really sort of an inflection point for the Israeli protest movement in America, because while they want to get the American Jewish community on their side to help pressure the Israeli government, there are lots of disagreements about how to do that, you know, whether to sort of bring American Jews into their tent, whether to try to assimilate themselves within the American Jewish community. And the parade was really an opportunity to do both. So, the parade has really taken a rightward shift over the past decade or so, and liberal Zionist organizations and progressive organizations have by and large avoided it. But this year really marked the difference where this uh, liberal Zionist organization called Amenu decided to march for the first time in years. And with them, they wanted to bring different organizations within the coalition of Israeli protesters, both within Israel and America. So there's this big grassroots organization of Israeli protesters called Unacceptable. They have local branches throughout the country. And Unacceptable really wants to be part of the conversation at a foundational level and also at a grass tops level. So, you know, they wanted to participate in the parade, but the only way they could participate in the parade was by being participants. They couldn't protest the parade. So, as they were preparing to march, you know, the message was really emphasized and really stressed that they were not protesting the parade. They were fighting for Israeli democracy within the confines of the parade. Meanwhile, another group of Israeli protesters, a smaller group, but still a more vocal group, decided to protest on the sidelines of the parade, and they would trail the ministers wherever they were marching throughout the parade on the sidelines. So overall, it was about a thousand pro-democracy marchers within the confines of the parade, and it was about 300 that were protesting on the sidelines. And what was the reaction of, you know, the vast majority of people marching who were not protesters towards the protesters? Were there confrontations? What was the atmosphere like? Well, that's a really important point to note because, you know, this protest did not represent a total sea change of how the American Jewish community views Israel. You know, obviously the thousand pro-democracy protesters was a very sizable block. You know, they were either the second largest of nine or the largest, depending on who you ask. But, you know, they very much like made their presence felt. And, you know, as they were marching along the route, you would hear occasional boos, occasional heckles. Uh, there were occasional dust-ups on the sidelines, both from American Jews targeting American Jews to Israelis targeting Israelis to Israelis targeting American Jews to American Jews targeting Israelis. You know, it was just sort of a rainbow coalition of fighting. But <laughs> it was really, you know, remarkable to see because it really did showcase just how much of a fault line Israel has become particularly under this government, in the conversation here. And, you know, the optics of Israelis protesting the Israeli government at the Israel Day Parade, it's just as bad of PR as you can get, really. Do you feel like it has had an effect on the conversation in the American Jewish community? And, you know, from your Washington point of view, do you feel like these things happening on American soil versus, you know, television photos of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelis marching. Do you feel that there's any special impact of the fact that the demonstrations are happening in the United States, albeit on a relatively small scale and not just abroad in Israel, or it doesn't really make a difference? Well, it's complicated. It really depends on your vantage point. You know, part of the efforts of the Israeli protest movement to really entrench themselves within the American Jewish establishment, you know, a lot of empathetic figures at the top of the American Jewish establishment, you know, real legendary legacy figures, they support the protest movement, but they also 
are very hesitant to encourage them to protest at the parade and to protest outside Jewish agency offices and conference of presidents offices. And their whole point is, why don't you garner support among American Jews, charter flights, go back and protest at Kaplan Street? So American Jews are just operating on a different wavelength, both in terms of how they're talking about the protest and their actual methodology of protesting. You know, it was really interesting to see the pro-democracy block, you know, a thousand people strong. And, you know, the Americans at the front lines were each like trying to take their turns and speak on the megaphone and do things very orderly and very hierarchical and, you know, really respect the pecking order and the sort of hierarchy of it all. And the Israelis, you know, they are much more fiery. They're much more all for one, one for all. And it's really hard to square the circle at times when everyone is just sort of, they have the same end goal in mind, but they are just so fundamentally different in how they view getting that point across. It's so interesting, right? We not only have right versus left, government versus anti-government, pro-overhaul versus anti-overhaul, but then you have to add to it the cultural gaps, I guess, in those with, as you said, the the same goal, but different techniques, those who are willing to uh, wait politely in line and those who aren't. Yeah, I mean, if any American who has been to Israel and any Israeli who has been to America, you know, they can very much tell you the variety of ways that there are cultural differences, to say the least. So the two most colorful moments, at least as I perceived in uh, in social media, I- involved a member of Knesset Simcha Rotman, who is the head of the Knesset Constitutional Committee and one of the architects of the judicial revolution, and another one involving Diaspora Minister Amichai uh, Chikli. Can you tell me about those two events? Yeah, so Simcha Rotman, you know, he's by and large been the primary figure that's been targeted by the protest movement for months now. And he spoke at a synagogue in Teaneck, you know, a very traditionally right-wing synagogue, but a major synagogue. And hundreds of protesters, you know, were were demonstrating outside that synagogue. And they continued to trail him throughout the streets of New York over the weekend, you know, uh, after Shabbat started Friday night. And protesters were following him down the streets of, I think it was Madison Avenue. And one protester, you know, had a megaphone and she was, you know, trailing him for blocks. And she said something along the lines of, you have to remember that we're all Jews too. And that, you know, really provoked desire. And he forcibly snatched the megaphone away from her off around her neck and started marching away with it. And, you know, eventually cooler heads prevailed. He gave the megaphone back, but they filed a harassment complaint with the NYPD about the matter. And, you know, the NYPD closed it after 24 hours, but it just really showed, you know, how high tensions really are. And it just brought to the general forefront the question of, you know, is this really how we want the Israeli government represented abroad? You know, it's really kind of giving into the most base of interest in optics. And then with Amichai Chikli, you know, he was marching in the parade despite Netanyahu's request that ministers did not participate in the parade because of all the craziness going around. And the best case scenario reading of it was that he gestured mockingly at the anti-occupation protesters on the sideline with his fingers. And he was, you know, trying to tell them to smile. The he picture just happened that, to point with his third finger yeah, so <laughs> to his picture, face, right? Exactly. So the picture that was captured by the forwards, Jacob Kornblut, who was in serendipitously in the right place at the right time, <laughs> you know, Chikli, you know, had two fingers on one side of his face and his middle finger on the other side of his face. So, you know, either it was 
very much a magical moment captured in time or the minister who was in charge of engaging the world's Jewish community with Israel was giving protesters the middle finger. And, you know, the protesters were already, you know, completely outraged with Chickley. You know, they were already planning on protesting his meeting with the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations the next day. But this just really raised the volume to 11. And it, you know, it's just such a bad look for the Israeli government when they are at this moment that is supposed to be the biggest opportunity for Israel to sell itself to the biggest Jewish population in the world outside of Israel. And he's giving protesters the middle finger. You know, it really is outrageous in a lot of ways. And, you know, he addressed it in real time. And he said, I was telling them to smile. I wasn't giving them the middle finger. And then the next day at the Jerusalem Post conference, you know, he very much tongue-in-cheek referenced it. And he said, the parade was great. We got a lot of people to smile. You know, <laughs> so there's no real intellectual engagement with wh- how his conduct is coming across here. So are, were, the, were the protest leaders happy with, uh, with what happened, with how events played out? Did they feel like the protests were effective? And you, as an outside observer, do you think that this was an effective strategy and that in addition to ruining whatever good time the ministers might have been able to have in New York City, do you feel like it successfully sent a message that uh, they can't run and they can't hide from opposition to this judicial revolution? I think so. I mean, it's important to remember, again, that the parade itself wasn't by definition a protest. So I think they were very happy in the sense that they managed to find a way to participate in the mainstream conversation while also getting their point across. But outside of that, you know, the protests throughout the weekend were extremely notable. The optics are undeniable, you know, especially with the aid of social media. They were being shared with WhatsApp groups and shared on Twitter in real time, and they were making it back to Israel immediately. And, you know, I think what's also really interesting to flag is the Jerusalem Post conference the next day. And there were supposed to be about two dozen protesters that were both outside and inside the protest, but Jerusalem Post managed to cancel over two dozen tickets of people that were supposed to go in just for violating terms of service. And the working theory is that they their phone numbers were cross-referenced with uh, WhatsApp groups of local protest movements, and that's how they identified people. But they still managed to get eight people inside the conference hall who waited until about three in the afternoon to interrupt economy minister near Barkat. And, you know, they were forcibly removed from the conference. And that was particularly notable because, you know, that is really sort of the first example of an institutional pushback against the protest movement and the protest movement still managing to both demonstrate outside, you know, also with the help of progressive American Zionist organizations, but also inside the conference hall and really the rubber meeting the road in terms of an institutional clash from the right wing of American Jews with, you know, this more pro-democracy movement, which, by the way, still has a lot of work to do in terms of identifying its own ideological positions outside of being pro-democracy. It's interesting that a commercially oriented conference like the Jerusalem Post conference would have to cancel the tickets of people who had paid for admission to it in order to prevent disruption and, and protests. That's really sort of, you know, getting inside this kind of thing. Not only that, but the people that were either 
their tickets were canceled the night before or they were turned away at the day quite forcefully, they were told that their numbers were identified from Israel and they got instructions from Israel not to let them in the conference within America. So it brings up more questions and answers about, you know, the sausage making of it all. <laughs> uh, so you think that uh, in the future, Israeli ministers or, you know, people identified with the government and with the overhaul are going to think twice before they take a trip to America or hold meetings there or, you know, will do it less publicly? I doubt it. You know, <laughs> a trip to America is a trip to America for an Israeli minister. You know, it's still an opportunity to travel abroad, go to New York, meet a bunch of important people, um, you know, Maybe they will have more security. Maybe there will be a little bit more cloak and dagger to it all. But I, you know, look at what's happening in Israel. Is it making them change their behavior whatsoever in real time? Not necessarily. But, you know, I don't think that's necessarily going to sway the protest movement from changing tack. If anything, it's going to encourage them to keep it up and to increase it in frequency and increase it in tone and tenor. Ben, thanks so much for joining us and have a safe trip back to Washington, D.C. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, Ido Rakovsky and the story of the Israeli dream team that just moved to the semifinals in a big tournament in Argentina. I'd like to welcome Ido Rokovsky to the podcast. Ido is a sports journalist here at Haaretz. Hi, Ido. Hey, Allison. So Israel is on a high following a quarterfinal victory in an international tournament in under-20 soccer. All the players are under 20 years old, or soccer or football, depending on what country you live in. Tell us about this tournament and why this Israeli win against Brazil is so exciting for everybody. Well, to talk about the importance or the role that this national team is playing at this point, we have to go a little bit back. We're talking about 1970, okay. which was the only time Israel qualified for the World Cup in soccer. We're talking about the adult team, the national team. The grown-up team. The grown-up <laughs> team, yeah. Since then, there were a lot of disappointments from our national teams. We're talking about lack of physicality, lack of mentality strength. So for many years, a lot of soccer fans in Israel lost belief in our game and in our ability to compete. Since 1992, because of the Arab world boycott when it comes to a sporting world. So for many years, Israel has been playing in Asia against Asian countries. Mm -hmm. Over the years, many countries boycotted Israel and didn't want to play Israel, so Israel had to move from Asia to other continents. Since 1992, Israel is based in Europe. So all of our national teams and all of our clubs here in Israel are playing in European competition. Obviously, Europe is much stronger in soccer because it's the number one sport in, in Europe and Europe has been the best in soccer, Europe and South America. The biggest clubs are in Europe. So to compete in Europe, it means that you compete in the highest level. So Israel has been failed for many, many years to qualify for either European Championship or the World Cup. So Israelis would like, as far as I could see, right, focus on the rivalries inside the country or become mad fans of Manchester United or Barcelona or Madrid right. so they could cheer on foreign teams yeah. in the big international competitions, kind of losing any kind of hope that Israel would ever be a player. Exactly. And what do you do when there's a World Cup like this past autumn in Qatar? Or what do you do when there's a European Championship, what we call the Euro? You choose 
a country to cheer. You choose a national team to cheer. For example, a lot of Israelis are uh, Netherlands fans. A lot of Israelis are Argentina fans or, or Brazil or England. So you kind of like have this dual identity of you have the club you support here in Israel. You have the club you support abroad. It can be Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Juventus, Real Madrid, Barcelona. But you also have a national team. But what's interesting is that this team is different. We're talking about a young team. The under-20 team. The under-20 team, yes, which started as an under-19 in UEFA, which is the European body of football. They have different tournaments for different ages. So you have under-17, under-19, under-21, and you have the grown-up team, as we call This is basically, as in other sports, this is to give the opportunity to the kids, the young athletes, that you're not even a late bloomer if you're bloom at 21, but you still get an opportunity with your equivalents. So Israel has been qualified for those tournaments, the under-17, the under-19, the under-21 for a couple of times. Under-19 was the first time was 2014, and the second time was 2022. So we're talking about kids that are at the age of 17, 18, 19, What's interesting is that only eight national teams across Europe qualify for the Euro Under-19. And that only happened to Israel twice in their 30 years of being a part of Europe soccer. So what was interesting is that it's really, really hard to qualify because it's only eight teams. And the tournament last summer, this team that's been coached by Ophir Chaim, mm-hmm. who was a former footballer, a coach who's been legitimate but didn't have much experience in club level. He started to coach teams of under 16 and under 17 and obviously under 19. And he somehow created this unit of players and his connection. I think he's the magic and he's the mojo behind this team. The Ted Lasso effect. Yeah, I mean, I I don't like the nickname Ted Lasso because Ted Lasso doesn't know much about <laughs> uh, soccer. But uh, in terms of inspiring them. Yeah, and yeah, definitely. And working together, that yeah, kind of thing. Definitely. Right? And it's especially notable, right, because it's a ethnically mixed group, right? We're talking about Jews and Arabs playing together, having to be on the same team and having really to be teammates and to bond with each other. Yeah, this is an excellent point because in our national team over the years, we had, a, I want to say, great cooperation between Arab players, obviously Muslims, Christians, Cherkessian players, and the current, he just retired from national team, Bibras Natho, who is Cherkessi, which is a very small minority that used to be Muslim. And the cooperation between the non-Jews and the Jews in the team has been, I want to say, remarkable over the years, up until a couple of years ago when the tensions in Israel started to leak into the national team. So you're seeing a lot of posts on Instagram and social media in general from players when there's a tension in in Gaza or tension uh, somewhere else and in Jerusalem. So the Arab players start to feel less confidence in their team, and that's obviously transmitted to their ability to play in great form. So from a point where a couple of years ago we had five Arab players in the starting 11 of national team, we comes down to maybe one right now. So this team, it's not something we should take for granted, right? That there are so many yeah. players in this youth team. I want to say... Soccer is not just number one sports in Israel, it's number one sports in the Arab society in Israel. We're talking about 
I don't want to just throw out numbers, but among the boys, I want to say it's about 50% of the Arab boys playing soccer mm-hmm. in Israel. And as young kids, do they get experience playing each other and with each other, Arab and Jewish kids? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You have local leagues, you have school tournaments. Obviously, most of them study separately, but they meet each other. And the great clubs like Maccabi Haifa, Apol Tel Aviv, Maccabi Tel Aviv, mm-hmm. Apol Be'er Sheva, which is surrounded by Bedouin cities and villages, they have many Arab players. So they give them the opportunity, as good as Jewish player, obviously, there's no difference. Or better, yeah. Or better. And what's interesting is that you see that this national team, the under 20, which is in the World Cup, it's under 20, in Europe, it's under 19, just to be clear. You see a lot of this bond between the players. You see that after the first knock-on round, the round of 16, Israel won Uzbekistan won nothing from 97-minute goal by Anan Khalaili, which his family is originally from Sakhnin, which is a village in Galilee, and he was born and raised in Haifa, and he plays for Maccabi Haifa. And he scored, this was great atmosphere, so much joy, and on his post-match interview, he said, thanks for all the people of Israel, mm-hmm. which is, was something so special that it becomes, yes, it's a figure of speech, but it also represents something, that this team is united, this team is above all disagreements and issues and conflicts that mm-hmm. happen around us. And they all know this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. All of the soccer world is watching this tournament just to find the next Messi, mm-hmm. the next Paul Pogba, who flourished in this tournament a couple of years ago, the next Erling Holland, which is probably number one player in the English Premier League right now, and he scored nine goals in the tournament when he was this age. So we're talking about a stage that Israel's not just never been before, but this is probably for most of those players, this is the peak of their career. And nobody expected them to have a chance against a team like Brazil. First of all, probably never expected them to get to the quarterfinals and certainly didn't expect them to beat Brazil in the quarterfinals. And so tell us about the exciting end of this game. Again, just to frame how rare it is, you don't have to be just a part of the eighth best national teams in Europe in this tournament where Israel finished second last year, only the top five qualified for the under 20 World Cup. So only five European teams Mm -hmm. qualified for this tournament. We're talking about 24 teams worldwide. Mm -hmm. So from this tournament, you have the Asian champion, Uzbekistan, which Israel beat. You have African champion, Senegal, Israel draw 1-1. You have Brazil, which is a South American champion that Israel beat 3-2 in extra time, as we say in soccer. And it's huge because... Yes, nobody believed, but if you ask Ophir Chaim, which I spoke to him many times over the last few months, he always believed in this. He said, we're playing 11 against 11. We're as good as them. And he shows that he prepared his team tactically and physically. And most of all, like from a mental level, we see something that we rarely see Israeli footballers. We see the mentality strength that they stay together and run like crazy in the last 20, 30 minutes of the game. And don't give up. And don't give up. I mean, if you saw the extra time against Brazil, you saw the Brazilian players, players that have been watched by European clubs, played for the biggest clubs in Brazil that produce all the amazing players of probably number one soccer nation in the world. Don't be offended, Argentinians. (laughs) But you see them running and you see the Brazilian players just falling off their feet because they can't handle. That's why I think Ophir got the nickname the Israel Ted Lasso because he transmitted his belief 
in them to them and he created special bond yes he's tough with them but he also hugs them a lot he danced with them and they posted on tiktok like he has this unique new relationship with players that we rarely see we either see a really distant coach or you see a coach that doesn't control the team you don't see this unique mixture and one more thing about Ophir and that's also a change that he brings to the Israel society he brings visibility for special needs kids his, right, his uh, son is uh, yeah his uh, firstborn is on the autistic spectrum he's uh, 22 years old and he talks about it a lot and kind of brings the awareness for this issue of what happened with these kids when they grow up who takes care of them what are the different structures the government has for those kids and I think it's really really important you see him playing and talk to the players this is something that beyond football we're talking about the cooperation with the Arab players this is something that goes beyond what happens on the pitch did you see any big stars in this team or do you think that the level of this team bodes something in the future for the level of Israeli soccer or you can't really tell at this age somebody's going to be a star or if this group might help raise the national level to the one that Israel dreams of someday watching the Israeli <laughs> team in the grown-up World Cup I don't think it matters actually this is not about the past it's not about the future this is about what happens now you know probably some of these players we're gonna see different articles in let's say 10 years what happened those players where are they now you know some might retire some might play in the third tier league or whatever it doesn't matter it matters what they makes us feel right now and yes some of them are gonna probably make it in the next couple of years to the grown-up team some of them are probably gonna play in Europe in the next couple of seasons if we're gonna have five of them playing in the national team in a couple of years that would be great I mean this is only one age group we're talking about kids that were born in 2003 2004 2005 those are the youngest and I think expectations are ruining what they can accomplish because a lot of people in Israel are targeted players and say oh this is going to be the next star of our game it doesn't work that way you know the lot of parameters like injuries and luck and timing and the right coach and the right team and yes the right amount of money for example the star of this team is not even with them in Argentina Oscar Gloch who's mm-hmm. one of the biggest talents in Israel in the last I want to say decade or decade and a half he played for a Maccabi Tel Aviv youth team he was the star of this team that brought them to the European final last year and he got an amazing contract in Arbe Salzburg in Austria and he moved there in January he doesn't need the stage anymore yes but I'm saying it's possible I hope we're gonna see players like Do Turgeman or Tomer Tzafati or Stav Lemkin the central defender or Kai Abed who's playing in the Netherlands right now in their youth academy of the PSV Eindhoven team so we'll see those players are getting to higher levels but what I think we should take is that our ability to fall in love with this group of kids almost in a contradiction to what we feel you know on the grown-up level and I hope these kids will take this up when they grow up and we're gonna kind of fall in love back with the team as you say because we really need this and I think if we'll take those skills and those unique atmosphere that those kids have in their game and we're gonna duplicate that to the grown-up team I hope that we'll see it happen yep and we don't take for granted any good upbeat stories that we have here <laughs> in Israel these days that yeah. actually happened on the same day that we had shooting on the Egyptian border where three soldiers died and the team dedicated their victory right. to the soldiers yeah. one of them even wrote right yeah Do- Dojeman the winning goals scorer he took uh, a band and he wrote in dedication to the killings of the soldiers and he wrote in his mm-hmm. hand and he showed that in his post-match interview and 
And I think that also shows you that how they are connected to this mission. This is not just about what happened on pitch. And I think that's the magic of this team. I think that's their skills, that that's how they beat Brazil. That's how they beat Japan, <laughs> you know. So I hope that we'll see, you know, them continuing their playing against Uruguay on Thursday, yeah. 8.30 p.m. Israel time. I think in America is 1.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. Eastern time. And I hope that USA is not going to be there. It's either USA or Uruguay. So I hope we're going to see them continue believing in themselves. Don't brag too much, you know, still see them as what they are. But there are only two European teams in the semifinals, Italy and Israel. Italy is playing South Korea in the other semifinals. So Israel is going to have at least two more games. So it's the semifinals, either the final or the third place game. So we'll see what will happen. But I think they only accomplish whatever their dream of and beyond. Thanks so much, Ido. It was great to hear about the game, and we've got our fingers crossed for the games that are coming up. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, Ben Samuels and Ido Rakovsky, and to my producer, Nara Malkin, and editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer. Until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>